0: Some of the larger ones include various forms of uh, Christianity, which is a a very, very big, broad label. Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, uh, but the list goes on and on and on. Regarding commitment, many people around the globe are extremely committed to their religion. Uh, Extremely committed. It's central to their identity. It defines them and their way of life. And you think about the impact of that, religion holds major, major influence over people, their lifestyles, it impacts their well-being, it touches everything for those who are truly serious about it, for those who are all in to their religion, whatever that may be. Religion is highly prized all around the world. And we are going to look at a a chunk of three different texts this morning that are all held together, we might say, by one common thread. And that thread is Jesus face-to-face with the religious establishment, so to speak. Jesus takes on the establishment, and the message is quite clear. That Jesus is better than religion. He is far, far better than religion. I invite you to join me beginning in in Mark chapter 2 verse 18, and we are going to read all the way through chapter 3, verse 6. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man. Not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. This morning, we're going to make five observations about authentic Christianity based on the things that Jesus says in these passages And here's the first observation that I would draw to your attention. Christianity is incomparable with religion. If you go back to verse 18 of chapter 2, here's what we read. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and the people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't? One moment, if you remember uh, the last text of Scripture, Jesus is feasting with tax collectors and sinners in the house of Levi. It's a big deal. And then the next moment, the religious establishment is fasting. And the stark contrast leaves some people kind of scratching their heads a little bit uh, and, and asking about it. And their question essentially lumps three groups of disciples together all in the same sentence as if they're similar to each other. You know, there's like the disciples of John and there's the Pharisees and then there's your disciples and why aren't you doing what everybody else is doing? And the expectation is that all three groups would do the same thing. They would fast. And when Jesus' disciples don't, it's surprising. What are the three groups of disciples mentioned in this verse? Well, you have the disciples of John the Baptist Uh, Their roots would have been in Old Testament Judaism. Uh, Interestingly, though, it doesn't appear that they have yet transferred their allegiance or loyalty to Jesus Christ. So as you think about them, think Old Covenant Judaism. And then there's the disciples of the Pharisees. Uh, These guys are condemned again and again in the New Testament. They're legalists who are promoting extra-biblical tradition as if it were equal to the law of God. If, as you think about them, think about Judaism plus, and Judaism plus, 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 a ton of tradition and a ton of extra rules. Think, basically just think misery, and you'll have the idea, right? And then there's the disciples of Jesus. They've got problems. I mean, no question about that. But they are following Jesus. And as we think about them, what we think about is, is life and gospel and Jesus, Though Christianity often gets compared with religion and other religious groups, it is not the same. Authentic Christianity is in a category all its own, which Jesus is about to show and which is starting to manifest itself in this storyline. Our our kids, uh, you think about when your kids are really young, if you have them, or or maybe you see a preschooler's book in school, and it's it's all like pictures because they can't read yet, and the instructions say something like this, you know, find the picture that doesn't fit with all the rest. And it's a line of pictures, and it's like, elephant, elephant, car. Okay, which one doesn't fit? The car. Ball, ball, pizza. Ice cream cone, ice cream cone. House, right? Which one doesn't go in the group? And in this case, in this story, it's religion, religion, Jesus. These things are not comparable. You shouldn't, don't think of them as all in the same string as they're all kind of the same. No, they're not. Christianity is incomparable with religion. In fact, Jesus is better and superior than religion. So, as you think about Jesus, I just want to just let's just make sure it's straight in your head. As we think about Jesus, we are not talking about religion. And Jesus and all that he stands for, it's something different. Second observation about authentic Christianity Christianity is marked by joy. The Old Testament law required one day of fasting per year on the day of atonement. And it was a day of mourning for sin. And there's going to be talk here about fasting. Just to be clear, Jesus is not against it. Okay, it's just the context in which this conversation is happening. But the Old Testament law required one day of fasting per year on the day of atonement. It's a day of mourning for sin. But it doesn't appear to be the day of atonement here. So why are these other two groups fasting? Sometimes fasting was done as a sign of mourning and grief. But that wasn't the only reason. Or it was sometimes done when there was a big, big need. I mean, there is something weighing on people's hearts and and it is huge. And so they're fasting and often with that, they're pausing to pray about whatever this massive thing is that's on their minds and on their hearts. At this time, fasting was also done to pray that the Jewish Messiah would come. Well, you think about the disciples of John. Perhaps John's disciples are fasting to mourn John's imprisonment that we read about back in chapter 1, verse 14. And perhaps they're fasting to pray for their leader's release from prison. And the Pharisees, well, the Pharisees actually fasted on Mondays and Thursdays as an act of self-righteous devotion. Luke 18, 11 to 12 in Luke 18, 11 to 12, a Pharisee boasted, uh, he, he boasts, he says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector that's standing over here. And then he makes this statement, I fast twice a week. I'm a good little Pharisee. And the Pharisees as well often tried to look a little bit haggard as they fasted, you know, just so everyone would know. Hey, look, I'm fasting. I'm really spiritual. And I, what's really ironic is as the Pharisees fasted, they were often the ones praying for the coming of Messiah. And people ask Jesus, okay, Jesus, why don't your disciples fast? I mean, Jesus could have just said, because I am the Messiah and I'm here. And it's cause for joy and celebration. But instead of just coming out and and saying something like that, Jesus shares a picture instead because it's worth a thousand words. Look at verses 19 and 20. And Jesus said to them, here's his answer. Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Uh, Weddings uh, at the time consisted of seven days of feasting and celebration. I mean, they were grand, joyous occasions where everything is stopping to celebrate for an entire week. And here, uh, if you're following closely the parallels, Jesus is the groom and his disciples are the wedding guests. What type of person in his right mind would fast on such a joyous occasion as a wedding? That would be ridiculous. Weddings aren't for fasting. Weddings aren't times of sorrow. By the way, the Old Testament refers to never refers to the Messiah as the groom or Israel's husband. It reserves that role for the Father, God the Father. Jesus is making a, a sort of veiled statement here. The groom in the Old Testament is God the Father. And here in this text, it's Jesus. And what's happening is Jesus is being equated with God. Jesus is making a statement about who he is. The followers of Jesus have immeasurable joy tied directly to the presence of Jesus himself. His presence brings joy his absence brings sorrow. Look at verse 20. The days will come, Jesus says, when the bridegroom, he's speaking about himself, is taken away from them. And then they will fast in that day. a day would come when Jesus would be taken away. And and the original wording implies the idea that it, it could have been like violently taken away. And then the disciples, when that happened, that's when they would fast. That's when they would show this expression of sorrow and mourning. But not today, Jesus says. Because the groom is here. Some think this is a a, a reference of the the groom being taken away. Some think think it's a reference to the ascension of Jesus when he went back up to heaven. And he's no longer physically in the presence of his people. But it's more likely a reference to the crucifixion. The disciples would fast and they would sorrow then because Jesus was gone, crucified. But the story continues and the story goes on that three days later, Jesus rises from the grave and then a little bit later, he ascends up into heaven. And what does he do after he ascends into heaven? On the day of Pentecost, he sends his spirit, he sends the spirit of Christ to dwell within his followers. And that is where he dwells today. Jesus dwells within his followers and gives them joy. His presence is cause for celebration, not solemnity. And that is one of the, the big points that Jesus is getting across to the religious establishment, so to speak. Authentic Christianity is marked by joy even in the midst of grief. Jesus is better than religion and almost, maybe he's even saying to the Pharisees and to these people that are asking, when has your religion ever given you true joy? It can't. And we could look all around the world today and look at all different uh, religions and very, people who are very, very busy with their religion. And we could ask, when has this actually given you joy? Do you see people with joy? but Jesus gives it. And if you are a follower of Jesus and you'd say he is my Lord and he is my master, uh, maybe it's worth all of us pausing and asking, what is my joy tied to today? I understand my happiness, it will ebb and flow based on life's circumstances. But do I have joy in Christ? Where are you looking to find that? I think we have a, a simple reminder here in this text that joy is directly tied to being in the presence of Jesus and Jesus dwelling in you. And if you go, I, I am so miserable right now. I mean, yes, Jesus is my Lord, but I don't have that joy. I mean, I've experienced it, but right now I, I can't say that I am. Do you know what you need? You need the presence of Jesus. Jesus. And if you're a Christian, he do, he's dwelling within you. But one of the greatest things you could do is, okay, God, I'm going to sit down in the presence of you before the pages of your word, and you've spoken word after word after word, and I'm just going to listen to you talk. I'm just going to sit in your presence and listen. Christianity is marked by joy. Again, Jesus is not dismissing the idea of fasting. We're not going to dive deep into that idea this morning, but uh, there are no New Testament commands to fast. It's a voluntary action in the New Testament and at times has many, many things to commend it. So please don't get the idea that we shouldn't ever do it anymore. Let's move on to a third observation about authentic Christianity. Christianity is incompatible with religion. Look at verses 21 and 22. Jesus keeps sharing pictures, stories, parables. And he says here that no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wine skins. What on earth is Jesus talking about? I mean, admit it. You've read those verses and you're like, I don't have a sweet clue what he's saying there. <laughs> Remember what we've seen so far? Jesus is contrasting two big ideas. And the one big idea is himself. And all that he represents in his message and his teaching and the gospel. That's one big idea. And the other big idea that we've seen so far is Judaism and tradition and religion look for those two big ideas in these pictures and i think you'll understand them both parables show that jesus and true christianity are incompatible with religion whether that be judaism or any other form of religion christianity cannot be added to religion and Jesus conveys that through the parable of the cloth and the garment. He, he says basically, listen, you don't, you don't take a new piece of unshrunk cloth or material and stitch it on to an old, tattered garment to try to patch it up. The new piece will shrink when it gets washed and it's going to damage that garment further. You just don't do that. What's the meaning of, of that story? Well, Jesus is conveying that the old covenant had been broken, and it needed patching, so to speak. But Jesus wasn't there to patch it up. Jesus wasn't there to, to, to try to, well, let's see if we can sew the old covenant back together. Jesus was there to make a new covenant. And the gospel is not an addition to or a correction to the old covenant. It's, it's a replacement. It's a fulfillment. It may have similar roots, but It is new. And further, you cannot take and add the pure gospel of Jesus Christ uh, to any form of religion or tradition. Thinking about the Pharisees. You can't add Jesus to anything without destroying everything. You can't take religion and try to patch its holes with Jesus. You can't say, I've got this great religion and Jesus is part of it. Christianity cannot be added to Religion. And, and then he adds another piece, Christianity cannot be contained by religious forms. And Jesus conveys that through the parable of the wine and the wineskins. A fermentation would begin immediately when gra- uh, grapes were trampled under, underfoot and, in a wine vat. And then the wine would eventually be placed into the wineskins where it would release gases and pressurize as the fermentation process continued. Wine skins were made from animal hides like goat leather. And if you got a brand new wine skin, it's it's somewhat flexible and is going to expand uh, along with the fermentation process. It's going to have some flex to it, which is needed. An old dried-out wine skin, though, couldn't handle that and would simply burst under the pressure and all the wine would be spilled out and lost. The wine and the skin would be destroyed. What's the meaning? Well, Jesus is conveying that Christianity, me, the gospel, the good news cannot be contained by dried out old religious forms. Jesus and the gospel do not fit into religious systems and structures. Religion is actually torn apart and burst apart by Jesus. And this message, it is foolish to try to put the new way of Jesus into old forms. The new way cannot be contained within Judaism. It cannot be contained within the traditions of the Pharisees. It cannot be contained within the legalistic religion of men. Christianity is totally incompatible with religion. Jesus is better than religion. And the Pharisees are sitting there and the disciples of John and Who knows what's going through their heads? Maybe some of them are thinking or starting to realize that my religion has been torn apart and burst open by Jesus. Jesus is dismantling everything that I hold dear. Do I accept Jesus or do I try to salvage what I have? And and the point is clear. You can't salvage what you have. The only option is to embrace Jesus instead. You, you cannot take your religion and tack Jesus onto it. You cannot say, I have this religion where I perform and where I do and where I achieve, and Jesus is part of that. I do, 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 and I go through all these different routines and this and that and the other, and Jesus is part of that. I have the Bible, too, as part of my religion. No, Jesus says. Jesus did not come to reform you but to regenerate you, to make you new. He didn't come to improve you. But to give you new birth and make you new, you need Jesus. And that's the message he's conveying. I want to ask you, are you trying to attain God's favor through a combination of Jesus plus you? Okay, here's what I need to do. And I need Jesus too. Jesus is blowing that to pieces. It doesn't work that way. You can't take me and attach my gospel to you and your good works and think you have a solution. That doesn't work. A fourth observation about authentic Christianity. Christianity is marked by blessing, not burden. I want you to look at verses 23 and 24 with me. One sabbath he Jesus was going through the grain fields and they made their way his disciples as and as they made their way his disciples began to pluck heads of grain and the Pharisees were saying to him look why are they doing what is not lawful on the sabbath oh the sabbath so important to the Pharisees Jesus disciples walked through the grain field on the sabbath And as they did so, they picked heads of grain. And you might think, oh, they were stealing. They shouldn't be doing that. No, actually, the Old Testament law made provision for exactly what they were doing. But as they walked through the grain field on the Sabbath, they picked some heads of grain, and they would have, uh, with those heads of grain, they would have rubbed them in their hands, uh, crushing them up a little bit, blown away the chaff, and eaten what remained. This was legitimate, as I mentioned, according to the Mosaic law. But the Pharisees cried foul, and they viewed it as that's reaping. You're working on the Sabbath. And they considered it as work, which was forbidden on the Sabbath. And basically the Pharisees, I mean, they just sucked the life and joy out of everything. And Jesus replies to them in answer with an Old Testament story in verses 25 and 26. He says, and he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need And was hungry, he and those who were with him. How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. On one occasion, David and his men needed food. They were starving. And they went and took the bread, from the holy bread from the tabernacle. And David took it and gave it to his men and they ate it. And it's interesting, the Bible doesn't condemn David. It just shares the story. The law of need and life take precedence and transcend the ceremonial law that the the Pharisees had become so hung up with. It was like they were missing the big picture somewhere in there. And Jesus goes on to set something straight about the purpose of the Sabbath. Look at verse 27. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. God instituted the Sabbath at creation long before the Mosaic Law even existed. In loving kindness, God set aside the seventh day as a day of rest. And who did he have in mind? The people that he had created. He rested. And he set a pattern for all of us to rest for our good. And Jesus reminds the Pharisees of that. He says, listen, the Sabbath, why was it made? All the way back in Genesis, the Sabbath was made for man. And for his good and for his benefit. Not the other way around. Not man for the Sabbath. The Pharisees managed to make the Sabbath a day of work, oddly enough. Oh, we're going to make all these rules and regulations, so it's truly the day of rest that God designed. And they turned it into a day of work. People had to work hard to keep a bunch of extra-biblical regulations and traditions. It was burdensome. We might even say that people were slaves on the Sabbath. Slavery and rest. I mean, they don't go together. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And then verse 28 So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. All things were created by Jesus and for Jesus. Colossians 1 says, Jesus made the Sabbath. Jesus did that. Surely he is also Lord of it. What's the significance of this event? Well, I think just a really high level, big idea. Christianity is marked by blessing, not burden. The book of Hebrews, you just have this whole string of thought about entering into a rest. A rest for the people of God. And the theme is massive and it's huge. Salvation from start to finish is rest from labor because Jesus has done the work. And Christianity brings out these blessings of God, and it heralds them. It's good news, the gospel. And when it comes to God's expectations of us, First uh, John five verse three says this: "For this is the love of God, for this is the love of God that we keep His commandments." Oh, that we actually need to do something. Yes, and His commandments are not burdensome. The Pharisees turned the Sabbath into work instead of rest what a picture of religion that is. You want religion in a microcosm, just look at what the Pharisees did with the Sabbath. People working hard as little legalists and slaves to attain the favor of God and earn salvation. What a huge, enormous burden. It can't be done. Religion has a way of distorting, twisting, and taking away all of God's blessings. It's just... That's what it does. I really don't like moving. Uh, I don't like moving heavy things, especially up and down stairs. Uh, When I was 15 or 16, I was working for my stepdad at a fire uh, water restoration company. And there was this hotel that had had some fire in the kitchen or something. It set off the sprinkler system in the entire hotel. The whole thing had to be gutted. And so our job was to go into that hotel. One of, our, one of our tasks was to go into that hotel and remove all the furniture. And oddly enough, it didn't have, um, I don't think it had elevators or they didn't work or the furniture was too big to fit in there. And I remember a couple of days in a row, a couple of guys and, and I going in there, every single room, grabbing the massive like, dresser credenzas and taking them down all the flights of stairs, two or three flights of stairs and putting them in a container outside. If you've ever moved furniture like that um, up or downstairs, if you're the poor guy on the bottom, I mean, the guy on the top, like he can hardly reach the thing, you know, but he doesn't have the weight. And the guy at the bottom is just standing with the whole dresser like on his chest, like, please don't crush me, you know, and your fingers are slipping and you've got the weight and I mean, we must have done that 50 to 100 times to get clear out all those rooms. And I mean, just the weight. I mean, you feel it in your fingers and your back and your legs and things are slipping and it's crushing and here it goes. I'm about to get into the... F- I'm going to... It's going to happen right here. I'm going to get crushed right on the stairwell. And the feeling of setting a weight like that down and just... Whew, it's amazing, isn't it? And that's religion. It is a weight that is far too great to bear. It's like you're trying to... to 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 get this massive weight up the stairs and it's all on your chest. You can't do that. And Jesus is here to say to people, "You you know you can set all that down. Christianity is marked by blessing, not burden. Jesus is better than religion and Jesus wants to set people free from the weight and burdens of religion and give life and joy and freedom and peace. His rules and commands are good and not burdensome. I want to ask you, is how, as you look at whatever it is you're doing, how how is it that you feel right now, so to speak? And maybe there are some of you, you, you sit here right now and you're like, that's exactly it. That's exactly what I've been trying to do. I mean, I've been like up the stairs with the dresser on my chest and the, the weight and the pressure, and I've been... Like this this is my relationship to God or whoever it is that I'm trying to earn favor with Are you living under religion's weight? Remember back to the first point, religion and Jesus not the same thing. Not the same thing at all. And Jesus has an inv- invitation for you. Let all the weight of religion fall Jesus wants to give you life. This is not about you performing. This is not about you doing. This is not about you earning the favor of God and checking off this box, this box, this one, and this one, and then maybe God will like you and you'll be good enough. No, Jesus came with good news, telling people to repent and believe the gospel and that he was going to carry all the weight of sin. And he took all that to the cross and he paid for it and he lived perfectly and you're in my place. I want to say a few words, too, about an idea. Maybe you might think of, um, in the Bible, we have God's rules. And in your house, you might have house rules. We have some house rules for our kids, like um, no talking after bedtime. I mean, we'll put our kids to bed, and if we let them, it's just... like Especially the girls. The girls are particularly guilty. Just, it's, like, it's like 11 o'clock, and they're just loving it, laughing, cackling, running around. I mean, whatever. And so, no talking after bedtime. That's the rule. Well, our kids could find out that your kids talk after bedtime. And they might come up to me and say, Daddy, did you know that the Joneses kids talk after bedtime? They're really bad. (laughs) Right, that's a house rule. And our house rule doesn't apply in your home. God's rules are different, though. They apply everywhere like this one, honor your father and mother. That's a God rule, right? Well, I think when we look at this text, we want to remember that when personal standards and expectations get elevated to God's standards, and then they get imposed on others as the standard by which they are measured, that's wrong. And that's what the Pharisees were often doing. Okay, we've got God's rules over here, but here's our massive list, and you're not doing that. Watch out for that. Don't set up extra biblical standards of righteousness for yourself or for other people. And, and it is so easy to do this. Oh, well, people should be, they should be living like this. They should be doing that. If they were really godly, they would live exactly like I do and abide by all my personal standards for myself or how I choose to live my life. That's what the Pharisees did. And it's wrong. And it's not gospel. Gospel. One final observation about authentic Christianity is that Christianity is marked by love, compassion, and care. Look at chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Again, he entered the synagogue, okay, so it's a Sabbath, right? And a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. It's the Sabbath, Jesus is in the synagogue, and there's a man with a withered hand. And the Pharisees are sitting there, they, they show up at the end of this passage, but they're sitting there hoping that Jesus is going to heal this guy. Because if he does, they'll have him, or so they think. And their argument being something like this, it's okay to help some, someone in a life-threatening situation on the Sabbath. You know, like they're, they're going to they're, they're gonna bleed out, we should probably run over and like, get a Band-Aid. But anything else can wait. And we see the Pharisees' hard-heartedness. Look at verses 3 to 5. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. I mean, Jesus asked this question. Any person with a soul would answer that it's always right to do good. No one could fathom a different answer except perhaps for a person who had been so trained and accustomed to thinking That uh, the way that we are made right with God is by observing a set of rules and regulations and being so hung up on that that you don't even see people anymore. Well, the Pharisees, they have no answer to Jesus' question. And next we see the goodness of Jesus contrasted with their hard, hard hearts. Look at verses 5 and 6. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. And then verse 6, the Pharisees went out immediate, and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Okay, this guy's got to go. I set out to kill, to kill him. Jesus loves, cares, and is full of compassion. And he heals this man, and he looks with righteous anger at the hard-hearted Pharisees. Jesus does good. And they turn around to have him killed. I mean, irony of ironies, they're like, we're so righteous. And then they turn around, we're going to deal with this guy. He's got to go. He's got to, I mean, they're literally, the end of the story is, he's killed. Jesus is good. Not these religious men. And what we actually see in them is, Great, enormous hypocrisy. What's the significance of this story? Well, Christianity is marked by love, compassion, and care. And often religion has a way of producing hard-heartedness and hypocrisy, and the two are not comparable. The gospel does not do that. Jesus does not produce that within us. Christianity is marked by love, compassion, and care. Jesus is better than religion. On this point, maybe it would be good uh, to use this whole idea as a litmus test. Do you see yourself, uh, do you see in yourself the love, compassion, and care that we see in Jesus in this story? Do you see that in yourself towards other people? And if you don't see that, I think the first question is Is all that I have just religion? Do I have Jesus dwelling within me even to start with? And I I think a follow-up question to that is, okay, if I am truly a son of God, I am truly a child of God, has my authentic Christianity just turned into religion somehow? That I've lost the heart of Jesus and I'm taking the glorious gospel and good news of Jesus and I've lowered it down to just religion. Also, the Pharisees' hearts were hard. But they were doing all kinds of moral things. I mean, Jesus—he's he, angry at their hard-heartedness. And yet, look at all the things that they're doing. I fast twice a week. I do blah, blah, blah. religion. Does not address the heart. How could it? It addresses behavior and what you do and self-improvement and all those kinds of things. But it can do all that somehow without actually addressing the heart. But Jesus does. Jesus and the gospel go straight to the heart and, and give you a new heart and start to transform you from the inside out. Religion does not produce change, only Jesus can do that. You can have all the right information. And you can not have the life of Jesus and you can be self-deceived for years. These guys think they're good. You can come sit in these chairs every single Sunday. You can grow up in a Christian home and mom and dad can teach you the Bible. And you can have so much truth. And Christianity, as it's called by so many, could be your way of life. And you could come be a part of this sort of thing every single Sunday. You could read your Bible and you could still be missing something. And so I want to ask you, what is it that you have exactly? Do you have what the religious establishment in Jesus' day had? Or do you have what only Jesus can give? Jesus just dismantled religion. It cannot give you joy. It is a crushing burden. It is a crushing weight and it hardens people's hearts. It doesn't change the heart. The only thing that happens to people's hearts in religion is hardness. In fact, it really doesn't address the heart at all. It can't bring about any real change. But Jesus can. Jesus is better than religion and there is no alternative to him. He is what you need and he will give you rest. And so I just want to close with, with what Jesus said in, in Mark chapter 1 when he was preaching. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus has given you an invitation to cry out to him and say, God, I am a sinner. I cannot be good enough to earn your favor. I am a sinner. Cleanse me. Forgive me. You died for me on the cross. You rose again, and I'm going to rest in your work and your performance, and your love for me. Will you bow your head with me at this time?